All right, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us tonight through the scripture. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts down deep in the best kind of way. So do that tonight. Let your word go deep. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you're here on Valentine's Day. I didn't know if anybody could show up. We thought... You know, maybe we put a kiss, kissing cam uh, on you guys or something. And well, hey, it's been uh, in Romans. It's been good. Huh? It's been, I mean, kind of heavy truth about us, <laughs> humanity, humans, as us. And uh, you know, Paul's laying out his case. That, that all humans need Jesus, all humans need the gospel. Whether they're the, uh, the pagan kind of humans that are really into the nasty, yucky sin stuff, or people who applaud virtue and uh, consider themselves good people. And as we'll see tonight, uh, even the Jews, the religious Jews, uh, who were lying not upon the Lord, but upon their heritage, their lineage, and their religion, and not God himself. And so it's an indictment, in the first three chapters, of all humanity. Everybody needs Jesus. So in chapter 1, Paul's dealing with the heathen, the pagan, the sinner, who... Uh, devolves into perverted behavior and abandons the natural design of God uh, and, and descends into uh, a pretty dark place, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. So in chapter 2 now, we're dealing with the, the self-righteous people who, again, they applaud virtue. They say, hey, we're for the things that are good and moral and right, uh, and, and Paul's indicting them. And we pick it up, I think, this is where we left off last week, Romans 2.12. For all who have sinned without the law, okay, so they don't have the law telling them right from wrong, the word of God, the Bible, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So whether you have the law or not, <laughs> if you don't have Jesus, you're going to perish. So if the pagans don't have the law, the word of God, by what standard will they be judged? What's the standard? So Paul's going to go on to say that creation around him and his conscience within him will indict every person. So we already learned that last or. Two weeks ago, creation declares the glory of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God every day, every night, declaring to all humanity. Tonight, we're going to learn that there is an inner witness in every single human being on the face of the earth who's ever lived. So verse 13, it's not the hearers uh, of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So, so here's an interesting dynamic. It's, there's a great danger to those who study the Bible or study the scripture only for knowledge. 
we can begin to think that our reading the Bible automatically implies to us spirituality, implies that we're doing the word. But in actuality, we might be only accumulating head knowledge. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8 says that knowledge does something when it's divorced from love. Knowledge puffs up. It feeds our pride. So if the word doesn't make the 18-inch journey from head to heart, head knowledge is only going to minister to our pride. Thus, we'll walk around with a head full of scripture and knowledge and a heart full of iniquity. So it's a strange combination, but you've, I'm sure you've met people like this, I have. They know more scripture than you do, and, and uh, yet their life is a mess and they walk away, you walk away from them feeling like, man, I just got so judged and thrown up on by, by this person who knows so much Bible. What's up with that? They're grumpy, they're critical, they're sour. So how do you know if you're doing the word? Well, Jesus made it pretty simple. He said in John 13, 17, if you know these things, meaning scripture, happy are you if you do them. Okay, it's one thing to know them, but happiness, blessedness comes by doing them. So if you're grumpy and sour and critical, you're not doing them. <laughs> because Jesus said you'll be happy if you're doing the scripture, if you're receiving the word, if it's being assimilated into your being. You're gonna be happy, a blessed person. So Paul says to the self-righteous person, it's not what you hear or know, it's what you do that matters. Verse 14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the scripture, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show, watch this, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. And on that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Man, that's intense. This explains a lot. It explains human nature in a very deep and profound way. People know right from wrong intuitively. All people do. And so there is, there's no culture where murder is lawful. There's no culture where, adult, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but it's not lawful. It's not applauded as virtue. There's no culture where adultery uh, is virtuous. All humans innately know right from wrong, and they will be judged whether or not they live up to the knowledge that they have. So God has written his law upon every human heart. It's etched there. And so Paul is saying that the conscience of every human being uh, essentially brings that awareness of God's written law upon our heart to our attention. Now we can sin against our conscience 
And we can even sin against it to the point where Paul says it can become seared, like with a hot iron. It becomes just callous, and we, we don't pay attention to it at all anymore. We don't hear it. It becomes such a faint voice. So Paul told us about the witness of nature, chapter 1, verse 20, his invisible attributes, attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Creation testifying every day and night that God is awesome, he's great. Now Paul says the internal witness is testifying to all humans as well. So now, he turns from the so-called good and virtuous person to the Jew. Now, this is an important subject, and it's a big subject in Romans. It's not just here in chapter 2. But the Jews play a huge role. They have played a huge role, obviously. God chose a guy named Abram a pagan guy who lived in a city called Ur of the Chaldees, and he chose this one man out of pagan humanity uh, through which to bring, to make a new nation, and from that nation would come the Savior. And that nation was given the law and the prophets. God spoke on Mount Sinai to Moses, wrote, etched in stone, his top 10 commandments. And so what about the Jews that don't embrace the Messiah? What about them? They still study the word of God. They still are the Jews who, through which have come the prophets and so on. Well, I think probably the, it's the religious person that's the hardest to reach with the gospel. There's nobody too bad for Jesus to save, but there are millions and millions of people who think they're too good for Jesus to save. So this is who Paul is dealing with in this section of Romans, verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, I mean, wow. Like, you've got the scriptures, man. You're relying upon the scriptures. You're boasting in God like, yay, God. And, verse 18, you know his will and approve what is excellent. Yes, the Ten Commandments, excellent. The laws, the various laws that God gave, awesome. Because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Like, wow. The Jews, religious Jews, who affirm everything about the Old Testament scripture, almost. The orthodoxy, the ordinances, the rituals, the all of it are being examined by Paul, and he's bringing out essentially the, the issue of religion versus relationship. Now, this was a common uh, dichotomy back in the 80s and 90s. Hey, man, I'm into, re into relationship, not religion. I haven't heard that many people say that 
in recent times. But there's truth to it. Now, religion, the word religion isn't always used in a pejorative, negative way in the Bible. James 1, this is pure religion, uh, you know, and so on. So we, we want to be careful here. But the difference between religion and relationship, if we are going to use religion in the pejorative way tonight, is that it's sort of the difference between a manufactured product and natural fruit. So the manufactured product, it comes from a factory complete with deadlines and pressures and workers and all the rest and uh, this constant need to produce. You've got to meet your quota and all the rest. But fruit comes from a peaceful, tranquil garden. A place of beauty where we would be inclined to want to just kind of hang out there because it's pleasant. And so it's vital to understand that God, God doesn't come to his factory to inspect the product. He comes to his garden to inspect the fruit. And so God invites us to leave the factory of religion with its works and pressures and rituals and all the rest and instead enter a love relationship with him and begin to bear fruit of that relationship. So if you are involved in, you consider yourself religious. Again, I'm using it in the, in the negative way tonight, then you are relying upon self-effort in order to please God and gain justification from God. So, religious works in this sense are generated by what the Bible calls the flesh. That's the, the first Adam nature that we all have and it has to be superseded by the second Adam, Jesus. So the, the works that we produce out of the first Adam, that's called flesh. So if you, however, walk by faith in a love relationship with Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God who dwells in you is producing fruit. It's known as the fruit of the Spirit, and it comes from relationship. So fruit isn't something you are generating uh, because you, know, you have to. Fruit, it comes from our relationship with God. Now, how many, anybody have a fruit tree in their yard? So Pam and I, we have, uh, we have an apple tree, we have a nectarine tree, we've got grapevines in the backyard and the front yard. And so, uh, you know, we, during the summer we would go out, we would inspect the fruit, and actually this summer was very prolific on all of our trees, and the fruit was delicious, it was awesome. But we never went out, never once did we go out there and you know, and see the fruit just kind of grunting and just, uh, oh, trying to grow here. Uh, you know, that just didn't happen. 
It was always tranquil. The branches, the vines, grapevines, just staying connected to the source, and the fruit just grew. Fruit is the product of relationship. As long as the branches are abiding, they're going to bring forth fruit. That's the way it works. So this is true of the Christian. This is true of us. If we are connected to Jesus, just abiding in Christ, then fruit will come from that relationship. Jesus said it plainly. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So apart from me. Now, a lot of times you'll hear somebody quote that and going, man, Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing, you know, and, and they're getting ready to try and do something great for God. And that's awesome. But Jesus is saying that if you are not rightly related to him, then there will be no acceptable fruit in your life. So whatever you generate out of yourself, out of your flesh, is unacceptable to God. It's not holy. It's not coming from the pure well of the Spirit. So God is, you know, he's much more interested in what we are than, than what we do. And this is, this is a, the, the tenor of, of Scripture and of the Gospel. God's, he's looking and desiring to bring forth fruit and more fruit. We typically, we focus on works, how much I did. What did I do for God? If I didn't do so much, I feel condemned because I didn't, you know, I didn't do the, this list that I think, this is what a good Christian does, these five things or seven things or whatever it is, and I, I missed three of them today, so man, I stink at this Christian thing. Well, you're kind of missing the boat. It's about abiding in Christ, and I'm not arguing against having a, you know, a discipline in your life. Discipline will serve us very well, but it's all about our relationship with Jesus. There's no such thing as a fleshy faith. <laughs> Flesh and faith are polar opposites. The Lord doesn't recognize the works of the flesh. He never has. Do you remember the, the story of Abraham being called to sacrifice his son Isaac and how that all developed? Abraham and Sarah, you know, are pretty old. And, uh, and let me just read one scripture because it's so fascinating. He said something interesting to Abraham in Genesis 22.2. He said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go uh, to the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. So that's a, the strange, that's a strange thing to say, not just that God is asking, you know, Isaac to, or Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. That's odd as well. But God said, your only son. Now, how many of you know that Abraham had another son, older son, Ishmael? And so this is odd 
because 14, there's a 14-year-old son who's 14 years older than Isaac. And yet God takes great care to say specifically, your only, take your only son. This is your only son. What, what did God mean by that? Was it just a you know, disrespect for Ishmael? No, God was saying Ishmael is not the son of promise. Ishmael is not the son of faith. Ishmael was a work of the flesh. Ishmael was generated by the flesh. Ishmael wasn't produced by faith and trust in God. He was produced by the self-effort of Abraham and Sarah. You remember the story. God promised them a child, uh, you know, some years earlier. They're now way past childbearing age. They figured God needed some help because they're so far gone. Abraham, you know, still, he could still maybe produce. So, okay, Sarah comes up with the idea, honey, I want you to go into our servant Hagar and have a child with her. And it was legal, by the way, in that day, and it was common. And that child would be considered Abraham and Sarah's. And... They figured, did Abraham and Sarah, that the child from that union between Abraham and Hagar would be the promised child, the one that God had promised. They thought Ishmael would be the, the child through whom a nation would be born, through whom Messiah would come. But God refused to recognize Ishmael. Why? Because Ishmael was a product of unbelief. God recognized only the work of his spirit, the miraculous work of Sarah being impregnated by Abraham past her years. And so Isaac, the miraculous baby, the baby who could not be produced by human effort. Therefore, he says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac. God never recognizes or rewards the work of the flesh, but he does recognize the fruit of faith. God doesn't run factories. He grows gardens. That's what he does in your life and mine. So he's not interested in our self-generated works. He desires to enjoy the fruit, the fruit of our relationship with him. He doesn't want us to depend upon our flesh. And, and you can think of that in so many different ways. You know, I think of um, uh, Hezekiah in Isaiah 30, where God says to Hezekiah, hey, I, I have this essentially against you. You know, in returning to me and in rest, you'll be saved. But you wouldn't return. You instead, you go to Egypt for help. Egypt is a type of the world. So just think of, you know, how can I get out of this mess that I'm in? You know, I'm in this financial bond. How can I get out of this? How can I work my way through? Or this marital problem that I'm having. How can I finagle my way out of this thing? How can I... Instead of Lord, 
You are the way maker. And I'm trusting in you. I'm standing still to see the salvation of my God in this situation in my life. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. It's essentially to get aligned with God, to forsake the works of the flesh, the tendency that we have to finagle and figure it out, use our wits. and That's flesh. And flesh gives birth to Ishmael's. Ishmael's are problematic in life. And so God is wanting a people who'll trust him, who'll stand on his promises, who'll stand still when our backs are up the re- against the Red Sea, and, and we'll see the salvation of the Lord. We'll see him make a way where there is no way. We'll see him provide in the desert where there is no water. We'll see water gushing out of the rock. We'll see the manna on the ground. And that's living by the Spirit. So, the Jews boasted in the law. So they were different from their pagan neighbors who worshiped idols. And so they had pride in that. We have the scripture, the holy scripture. Paul made it clear that it was not the possession of the law that counted. It's the practice of it. But even the attempt at practicing it apart from a relationship with God, is flesh, and it's unacceptable. The Jews looked on the Gentiles as blind, in the dark, foolish, immature, wicked, ignorant, and all the rest. But if God, and this is Paul's point, if God found those depraved Gentiles guilty, how much more guilty are the privileged Jews who have the word of God? who have their history, who have all the stories of God's miraculous workings, how much more culpable are they? So God, he not only judges according to the truth, like it said back in verse 2, and and not only judges men's outward deeds, like it said in verse 6, but he also judges the secrets of men's hearts, that's verse 16, the secrets of our heart. So that's everything. That's thoughts, that's intentions. You know, I mean, Jesus said some super controversial and perplexing things, and I think this had to be one of the most perplexing to the Jewish ear. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Like, what? You, you just went past my mouth, my body, into the interior of my being, saying that, that what happens in my mind and in my heart, like I'm gonna get judged on that? Yeah. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, 
If any of you says raka, idiot, to your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. That's an intense standard that no one can live up to. And that's what was behind Jesus saying, uh, you know, you need to be perfect as your father is perfect. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll be condemned. The Pharisees, the most externally righteous people on the planet, they meticulously followed not only the Ten Commandments, but the ceremonial laws, the ritual laws, all of it. And they would add to it because they thought, well, we're going to go even more. So they would walk down the street and they would not even look up. They would bump into stuff because, lest they, their eyes get lifted to see a woman. They would just go like this and, it, you know super dedicated to the law. So God, he sees not only the deeds, but he sees the thoughts and intents of the heart. So it's possible for a Jew to be guilty of theft, adultery, idolatry, murder, even if those things weren't committed outwardly. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus laid that out. But Paul now is gonna expose the fact that a head filled with knowledge of the truth is worthless if it doesn't make that 18-inch journey to the heart. So a religion or a religious experience that's all talk but no walk, it's, it's not going to stand the judgment. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? So this is a common human trait. The whole do as I say, not as I do sort of mentality. I've had, I've had this certain conversation with probably dozens of people over the years. It goes something like this. It might be a dad, maybe it's a mom, maybe it's both. But they'll say, you know, um, we don't consider ourselves Christians, but we want our children to grow up Christian. Or we want them to be in Lighthouse School because we want them to have good morals. We want them to, to have that background. And so they, they, they know that, that faith is a good thing, Christianity is a good thing, and so at least the Christian or the kids could have, you know, exposure to the Christian faith. And, and I, you know, I typically would say something like, listen, you can't expect your children to follow Jesus if you refuse to follow Jesus. That's an unrealistic expectation. People will follow your footsteps a lot sooner than they'll follow your advice. This is certainly true in the realm of spiritual instruction. Listen, true Bible teaching, and this is the goal. Every time that I get up, it's not, you know, it's not to whatever. <laughs> the only goal uh, in preaching is, well, be faithful, first of all, faithful to the word. But the goal 
in being faithful to the word is so that our lives can be shaped by the God of the word. So the, the end of the commandment, the goal of the commandment, 2 Timothy 1.5, is love, charity, agape, which is the fruit of what? Fruit of the Spirit is love. So we're, he, we're here to be shaped by God. We're here to be shaped by His Word. Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, sanctify them by Thy truth. John 17, 17. Thy word is truth. So, you can't lift others to a level higher than the one you are currently at. So, Isaiah, great, I love this example. This is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible these couple of chapters. But in chapter five, you have the prophet Isaiah going, I mean, he's going full prophet mode in chapter five. Like Old Testament, just fire, man, brimstone. And he's pronouncing woe upon the people of God. Um, Isaiah 5, 8, woe to them that go house to house, that lay field to field. Verse 11, woe to them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink. Verse 18, woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were a cart with a row. I'm just, just dragging it. I want it. I want more. Verse 20, woe to them that call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to them that are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink and so on. So six times, he's just, just laying the people waste, man. He's just laying into them with woe. But then chapter six happens and Isaiah finds himself transported to heaven into the very throne room of God. And in chapter 6, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. The doorpost shook. There was smoke in the room. Seraphim, these six-winged creatures, are flying around the throne of God, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah's freaking out. He was so just bowled over by the holiness and the majesty of God that he, he came undone. He said, I'm undone. He fell apart, saying, I'm a man of unclean lips who dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This prophet who was pronouncing woe upon the people all of a sudden is pronouncing woe on himself. Self-righteousness is a plague. Isaiah was wise. He embraced the truth. When he saw things in their true perspective, that he was a sinful man. By saying unclean lips, 
You know, he's not saying, you know, he's got cookie crumbs on his mouth or something. He's saying that out of the heart, out of the mouth, uh, what we say comes from the heart. It draws from the well of the heart. So if I'm speaking impurely, if my words are polluted in some way, that pollution comes from the core of who I am. I sin because I am a sinner. I say sinful stuff because it's drawn from a sinful heart. And Isaiah recognized that. And so it's the height of spiritual hypocrisy to teach others and not to learn the lessons yourself. You know, I've learned over the years, well, it's actually scriptural, that oftentimes when people are harsh, overly harsh and critical of other people and their sins, they're oftentimes covering up their own. I mean, that was true of David, right? Remember David, the famous sin with Bathsheba, and he thought he covered it up and got away with it all. And, you know, a year or so passes and Nathan the prophet comes and tells him the story of the neighbor guy who's got one pet lamb and, and this traveler is coming, comes to the rich guy. The rich guy lives next door to this poor neighbor. Traveler comes and the rich guy, rather than taking one of his plentiful animals, to feed the, tra the hungry traveler, he takes the neighbor's one single pet lamb and he slays it to feed the traveler. And David hears this and he is incensed. Who is this guy? He, we're gonna put him to death. And we're going we're gonna to pay back from that guy's flocks fourfold to this poor person whose lamb was taken. Nothing in the law about capitally punishing a lamb thief. Why was David so over the top with his anger? Could it be that the sin that he committed with Bathsheba was residing in him and that that anger was not righteous anger at all. It was smoke to cover his own unrighteousness. Have you noticed that when, when you excuse sin in your life, you can become very critical of it in other people's lives? That's a real thing. And so the person who hides an uneasy conscience and a sense of guilt oftentimes will flash out in anger against the sins of another. And that might be why you know, Christians at times are the most merciless towards other Christians. I mean, just, just ripping each other to shreds. 
And when we do that, it's not because we're so holy. It's because we're unholy at that point. So we're condemning the thing in someone else as we refuse to condemn it in ourselves. We might want to drop the stone if we're carrying one around. So verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So the, the hypocrisy of the Gentiles, or of the Pharisees, is giving the Gentiles reason to blaspheme. That's always a dynamic that comes with, with sin. And it gives the skeptic, the cynic, the unbeliever a reason not to believe. Now, let, let's be clear. It doesn't give people an actual excuse before God. Nobody's going to stand before God and say, hey, God, I met some really hypocritical Christians in my life. And so I'm, that's my excuse. That will not happen. God has not called people to believe in the church or in another Christian. He's called all people everywhere to believe in Jesus Christ, his son, the sinless one, the only sinless one. Even still, our goal as God's people should be to adorn the gospel with our lives, which, which doesn't mean living in sinless perfection. It means living humbly. It means when we do sin, we confess to the Lord. We humble ourselves. Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Aspire, you know, here's who you are in Christ. Now aspire to that in your life, in your daily living. And the Holy Spirit's gonna help you. The comforter, the parakletos, he's gonna come alongside and help you in that endeavor. So after David confessed his sin, David brought, uh, Nathan brought David's heart to the full implications of what he had done when he said, you know, unforgettable words, you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. That that's, comes from the David story. So Nathan was saying, listen, it's, it's hard to sell a product you don't use. It's even harder to sell a religion you don't live out. Nothing is more confusing than a person who gives good advice but sets a bad example. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who, who is, by the way, uncircumcision, how do you do that? Uh, so if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So, so Paul is getting right to the heart of the issue with the Jews who relied upon that sign of the covenant, circumcision. Circumcision was an identification of God's covenant people. It was an outward sign of the inward reality and of the covenants that God had made. You know, my wedding ring, which is 
a tattooed, kind of fading tattooed ring at this point, which Pam and I got our rings tattooed on years ago because I would often take my ring off to play guitar. It was just a little cumbersome to play guitar. So we decided, oh, let's go get a tattoo. Little did I know, that's not the most pleasant place to get a tattoo is on your, ah! But I did it for my wife. Thank you. So this is a symbol, an outward symbol of something that has happened in the spiritual realm before Almighty God. A covenant was made between my wife and I 39 years ago. And so that is real. That's recognized in heaven. It's powerful. You can't see it, but you can see this. And you know, circumcision was the outward symbol, the sign of the covenant with God. In the Old Testament, God revealed what circum circumcision represented. In, or in uh, Exodus 6.12, um, it talks about the circumcision of the lips. Jeremiah 6.10, the circumcision of the ears. Uh, Ezekiel 44, the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision was meant to be a picture externally of the the transformation that happens internally to the people of God who live in relationship with God. So yet, although the Jews were outwardly circumcised, they were far from where they should have been internally. So they have the outward sign, but they don't have the inward reality. So I point this out because Paul is making a very important point important point concerning outward signs and religious rituals. Well, I've been baptized, people say. I've gone through confirmation. I've had communion. And many people think that because they've gone through a baptismal ceremony, a confirmation, uh, whatever, that, th that they have the blessing of God because of those things. And that these rituals give them right standing before God. They do not. But they dunked me, Pastor Greg, like they, it wasn't a sprinkle, it was a, I went down all the way. Means nothing apart from the inward reality. The Jews were trusting the Mosaic ritual of circumcision for their salvation. But their disobedience to the spirit of the law invalidated their circumcision. Paul says it's become, un you've been uncircumcised. Oh, that's weird. It's wrong to trust in a ritual such as baptism or whatever for salvation. So our relationship with God is totally dependent upon a living, active faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're not walking according to God's will, you can't trust the ritual. Even if you were held under for three minutes in the Pacific Ocean or the Jordan River or wherever. Paul says the benefit of circumcision is removed by your disobedience. So circumcision speaks away, or of uh, doing away with the flesh life. So we come full circle, the flesh. 
It's the doing away of the life of unbelief, of earning your way to God apart from God in his grace. As the Israelites were about to enter the promised land, the Lord said to them, before you take on Jericho, before you can take the promised land and enjoy the milk and the honey, you must circumcise all those who came out of Egypt. You can't go in and experience victory until you do. In other words, they needed to do away with the flesh before they could experience victory in the spirit. And that's the way it works. The principle becomes lost among religious people because although they, they boast of the ritual, the baptism, the church membership, the circumcision, uh, you know, all of that, their hearts, their lips, their ears are hardened to the Lord in reality. So it's a problem. So let's finish here, verse 28. No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. So circumcision was intended to signify a people who would deny their flesh and live after the spirit. The significance could be totally negated if a man continued to live after the flesh. That's just the way it works. So the proof of this work of God is in the fruit of the Spirit that grows out of their life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Living by the Spirit is living in harmony with God and you naturally are keeping the law of God without trying. Let me close with a story. You've heard this, but the story of Ulysses and it's from Greek mythology, but during his travels, Ulysses heard the stories of the island of the sirens and these deadly, beautiful enchantresses uh, made such beautiful, irresistible music. So the story goes that any sailor that passed by in close enough vicinity to hear their song would turn their ship to the shore and it would be dashed upon the rocks. So their song was so powerful and so no one had ever heard the song of the sirens and lived. So this sounded like a worthy challenge to the daring, dashing guy, Ulysses. So he decided he's going to be the first one to ever hear that music and survive. So in order to achieve the goal, Ulysses called his crew together and he melted wax into all the ears of the crew. And, and so, so that they couldn't hear anything. And then he had his crew tie him 
to a post to the ship's mast, and they tied him tight with thick ropes. And as they cruised past the island of the sirens, the music was wafting through the air. Ulysses began to strain against the rope, struggling to get free so he could just jump in and swim to the shore. He was cursing at his sailors to turn the ship to the shore, but they couldn't hear him. They got wax in their ears. And so he's just going crazy and just trying to get free and so on. Ulysses heard the song of the sirens and he lived. Yet he was on the verge of insanity for the rest of his life because he was haunted by the sound forever. Greek myths also tell us of another ship that passed by this island and, and yet survived. Its crew was being drawn to the deadly music and to disaster, and a gifted man at that point named Orpheus, he grabs a lyre, a guitar, essentially, and began to play. And the music of Orpheus was so incredible and beautiful. It surpassed that of the sirens that the men turned away from the rocks and they sailed to safety. They were enraptured by the beautiful music of Orpheus. Listen, when, when we face the pull of temptation, and we will, most of us can relate to either Ulysses or Orpheus. For some, the siren song of the world has such a strong pull that it's virtually irresistible to us. And you find yourself being drawn to things you know aren't right, and you just keep doing it again and again. But there are others who have heard the new song, the music of heaven is in your heart. You've discovered that your love of Jesus is so strong and satisfying that though, though the world is attractive, it never stops sort of glimmering and glittering and all the rest. You gladly turn away from it to hear the more beautiful sound of your Lord. And you don't have to be tied up or bound, you know, and follow the laws and, and so on, because you're in love with the Lord. And he's your satisfaction. Let's pray. Thank you for your word to us tonight. And God, we ask that as we, as we sing, beautiful songs of praise to you, Lord, that we'd be reminded that if we are in Christ tonight, we have received a, a circumcision that's not made from hands, but a circumcision of the heart done by the Holy Spirit who has come into us, dwells in us, and enables us to live according to the music of heaven and to not crash our ship on the shores of the world. So Lord, for those that maybe have been in a, in a struggle of this sort and have been uh, losing some of the battles, Lord, we can lose some battles, but we're gonna win the war. But my pray prayer, Lord, is that for my brother and my sister, that they would start to win some of the battles too, and that you'd get them free. 
And so, God, I pray for us tonight that we would be a people who would nurture our love for you, that we would be ones who tend to the garden, and that we would see more and more fruit growing in our lives, Lord, that only you can grow. But, Lord, we can place ourselves in the position. We can place ourselves in the light and let the sun shine on us like we're doing tonight. And we will see that fruit growing more and more in our lives. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.